US president, Thomas Jefferson, was a, was a crafty individual. Now, when I say crafty, I don't mean sneaky or underhand. I mean crafty as in craft knife and glue and Etsy. That's the kind of crafty which I mean. Because in, in, it, because in, the, year, in the year 1820, he took a razor and a glue and a Bible, and he began a process of actually cutting down the Bible. He literally cut and pasted whole sections of the gospel into a new work called The Life and the Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And in this work, he kept all of the teaching and the parables of Jesus, but anything that smacked of the supernatural, like angels and miracles, etc., was left on the cutting room floor. Now, one, one historian says this, if a moral lesson was there in the miracle, then the moral lesson survived, but the miracle did not. And so, we, and so we read the account of Jesus' birth, but there's no angels. And there's no second coming. There's, there's no eternal life. There's no resurrection. There's no heaven. There's no hell, according to him. And, and U.S. President Jefferson's account ends with Jesus being laid in the tomb, and that's it. Now, I've said this before, but it's still true, so I'll say it again. I love spy movies. And often in the spy movie, the angel gets hold of the document. It's in this manila envelope, and it says secret or eyes only on the front. And you know that once this agent has hold of that, this is the really key moment in the movie. And the music is really tense because you know that secrets are about to come out. And then they open the envelope and they look inside. And you can see from the look on their face that something is wrong. And then the camera cuts from their face down to what they're looking at. And you will suddenly understand what the problem is. Because there, because there is a piece of paper there. There is something written down. But at the same time, there's not. Because almost the whole thing has been actually blacked out. It has been redacted. And I think if I was to look at your Holy Bible, which you may or may not have, but if I was to look at, so let's say you have one, and I was to look at yours, I would suspect that probably a lot of it is redacted. Now, there might not be big black lines over every page. If there are big black lines over every page and it's not, you know, the underlining, then maybe we should have a conversation. But it may not look like that. But there are parts of the Bible that I'm quite sure that many of you have never read and never planned to read. Maybe you know that they're there, but you kind of hop over them, or you ignore them and hope that maybe they actually go away. Maybe you consider them rather boring, rather hard, rather confusing. Maybe you're afraid that what you read on the page of the Bible will actually conflict with the image of God that you have in your mind. And so you'd rather leave him alone like he is, and so you steer clear of the passages that maybe challenge this view. So it may not be a craft knife. It may not be actual tape. But like Jefferson, we are experts at creating our own version of the Bible made up of a verse here and a verse there. 
for I know the plans I have for you. Flows into all things work together for good, which flows into for God so loved the world that he gave. And finally, the Lord is my shepherd. Meanwhile, much of the Bible is left there on the cutting room floor unread. But here's the problem. When our Bible is incomplete, so is our view of the Lord. So is our view of God. Now, we've, we heard, uh, we've already heard that the Sanhedrin have, you know, challenged the Lord. We, last week we heard about the, yeah, the Herodians and the Pharisees who were trying to catch him in his words. And now it's the turn of the Sadducees. And the problem with what we will be looking at in Mark chapter 12 is that they're not interested in the answer because they've already redacted the word of God. They did not actually believe in the supernatural or in the resurrection. All they believed in was the first five books of the Bible. That's it. None of the rest. None of the rest of the Old Testament. And the rest of it was left on the cutting room floor. These Sadducees had already made up their minds. Now, in verse 18 of chapter 12, they actually pose this absurd maybe scenario where a woman marries a guy. He dies. His younger brother, he does the decent thing, and he marries his sister-in-law, or what used to be his sister-in-law. And the reason why this is the decent thing to do was because she would have had the opportunity then to hold on to the family name because any of the children who were born in the second marriage were counted as, as being part of the first marriage. So, and that was something that, you know, folks actually did regularly there in the Old Testament. It's known as the Leverite or Leverite Law. And we see it with Ruth. Uh, we see it in the account of Onan in the book of Genesis chapter 38. Now, the brother, he didn't have to do this, but it was the right thing to do because it, it let the land and the money stay in the family and, it, and, the, you know, and the name and the blood line went on. And so we go back to Mark 12. Here we are on hipster brother number two. Now, he dies, and the next brother jumps into the traces he unfortunately passes on without any children, and the next one jumps into the race, and so on and so forth. There's marriage, there's no kids, and there's the death of a husband, there's marriage, there's no kids, and there's the death of a husband, there's marriage, there's no kids, and there's the death of a husband. Six times this happens. Now, of course, it doesn't take a genius and it doesn't take long to start realizing that something is wrong. Here, this woman survives while brother after brother pops their clogs. Now, if I was brother number seven, I'd be really struggling with the whole, you know, for better, for worse, part of the vows. And I'd, I'd start to be getting cold feet. But... He manned up and he did the right thing and he died. 
So now we move from this earth, earthly view of things up to heaven, which we, which we learn in verse 19 that the Sadducees don't think exists, but, but, but let's move up to heaven. And the question is, whose wife will she be? Who will she choose? Will she choose Eli? Will she choose maybe Jacob? Will, will you know, who will she choose? It's, it's like a celestial version of maybe Tinder, right? It's, it's absurd. It's ridiculous. And Jesus knows this. He knows that the Sadducees are having a laugh. You know, Jesus, I mean, you know, can you imagine how confusing it is in heaven? With husbands and wives here and first and second marriages. I mean, can you imagine maybe Solomon in heaven with his 700 wives and the 300 concubines, Jesus? Who would be his wife? Who would he choose? But then Jesus puts them right. And he simply says that in heaven, there will be no marriage. There will be no wedded bliss. There will be no, no ball and chain. There will be no husbands. There will be no wives. Instead, Jesus says that they will be like the angels in heaven in verse 25. Now, another fact is that the Sadducees didn't believe in the angels either, as we read in Acts chapter 23, verse 8. And so what Jesus is doing is he's answering their mockery of a question about resurrection, which they don't believe in anyways, by referencing angels, which they don't believe in. He's playing them up their own game, and Jesus is having a whale of a time. He's loving it. But what we learn here is that in the new heavens and the new earth, we will become like angels in the sense that we will live forever and we won't need to procreate. Okay, some of us are like, yes. Some of us are like, oh. <laughs> but we won't, we won't be angels because angels are a different order. They're a different species, as it were. But in some cases, but in some sense, we will become like angels. Now, I don't want to be be crass, but in short, what Jesus is saying, and I want us to be clear on this, is that heaven will be better than sex. Okay, think about it. If God's plan is for sex to take place in the covenant of marriage, and there's no longer any marriage, then there's no longer any sex, and we won't miss it one little bit because heaven is going to be that amazing. Now, we can't imagine that, right? Because it sometimes feels like sex drives our entire culture. So how can we imagine an existence without sex? We, we aren't able to. But that's like me as a teenager. I could not imagine how great sex was able to be. I had no reference point, And then I got married, and then I found out. In the same way, we have no current experiential reference point for a future existence where whatever lies behind our desire for sex is already fulfilled absolutely. It's incredible. There will be no itch that we have to scratch. And so there's a lot that we, we don't know about heaven, but we do know that it's going to be flipping amazing. Because marriage is not part of it. Because sex isn't part of it. And we won't miss it one little bit. 
And so this is really good news for the single people among us. Because one day, you will literally laugh about those years on earth when you felt like you, you were missing out. And you'll laugh because what you have there is much, much better. And we're not talking about 30, 40 years. We're talking about for eternity. And so you will laugh. But like I said, right now, we're not able to wrap our heads around that. But rest assured that the truth is that no marriage in heaven is good news. It's great news. Now, now another thing that we know about these Sadducees, like I already mentioned, is that they only reference the first five books of the Bible. Would you mind moving on to the next slide there, Jake? Nothing else. And since not a lot about the resurrection is written in the first, first five books of the Bible, the Sadducees say that it doesn't exist. There's no resurrection, there's no heaven, there's no hell, just like President Jefferson. Their Bible was not complete, and so their view of God was not complete. But then Jesus unrolls this metaphorical scroll in front of them, and he, he draws their attention to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, where, where God meets Moses. And we read that in um, verse, um, verse uh, 26. He references Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Now, what we have to understand here is that when he's referencing Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, he's not referencing some obscure little verse in Leviticus. He's referencing this moment where God, after 400 years of silence, shows up and speaks to someone, and that in turn sets off a wonderful chain of events or a horrific chain of events which ends up with, with the parting of the Red Sea, you know, and the plagues, you know, and the desert crossing and leading into the conquering of the, leading into the, conquering of the promised land. So this is the burning bush. This is, this is massive. This is huge. And so these Sadducees would have known Exodus chapter 3 verse 6 incredibly well. And so Jesus says with a gleam in his eye, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the encounter of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? Now, here, God is talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present tense. If they were dead, if there was no resurrection, then what Jesus would have said, is, or what God would have said at that moment is, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here we see that God is in the details. Even, you know, the tense of a sentence reveals something about God's truth, which is incredible. He's saying, I am the God, not I was the God, which means those people I'm talking about are still alive, which means that the resurrection exists. And then, and then Jesus fires this wonderful parting shot in verse uh, 27. He says, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Someone once said, it's good to learn from your own mistakes, but it's even better to learn from other people's mistakes. So where did the Sadducees go wrong? And how can we learn from their mistake so that we don't make the same ones? Jesus sums up their problem in verse uh, 24. He says, are you not in error? Because you do not know the scriptures 
or the power of God. Let's read that all together. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? There were two things that they didn't know that led them into error, the scriptures and the power of God. And the message words it like this, you're way off base. And here's why. One, you don't know your Bibles. And number two, you don't know how God works. Now, these are people who'd spent their lives learning. You know, they loved knowledge. They loved education. They loved understanding how the world works. These are people who even stood under the authority of Scripture, at least maybe part of it, and yet they got it wrong. First, they didn't understand the, the Scriptures, and the reason why is because they literally cut out four-fifths of what was available to them and said, that's not for us. We're just going to read this. And even the section which they knew, they weren't they really didn't know it, you know, if they got Exodus 3 verse 6 wrong. Because God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and so what we can learn from this is that sometimes we can spend so much time looking at the deeper truths of Scripture when the basic truths are there, and we don't even know those. We miss those. And so I want to encourage us here today to do two things to help us avoid walking into error. There are two things which we can do that will help us move into a more complete view of Scripture and therefore a more complete view of the Lord. First of all, we need to revisit revisit familiar Scriptures. An example of this is Psalm 23. I've read Psalm 23 so many times and yet last week I heard a speaker share really emotionally, how he uses Psalm, Psalm, Psalm 23, verse 1, as a, as a lead into prayer. He said this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And first he, first he meditates on the truth that God is Lord. He's worthy. He's in charge. He is everything. He's Lord. And he just meditates on that for maybe 20 minutes, just meditating on that. And then he moves and he meditates on the truth that Jesus is shepherd, that God is shepherd. He's gentle and kind. He leads him. He looks after him. And he just lingers there and he stays there and meditates on that. And then he lets these two truths that the Lord is shepherd, that the Lord is Lord and the Lord is shepherd. He lets these truths lead him into a place that he called the place of no wants. God is Lord, God is shepherd. Knowing this leads into this response, I shall not want this place of no wants. And so God, through his revelation in scripture, leads him to a place where he can say, I have no wants. I have no wants. Absolutely none. Now, I've read this psalm a million times, but hearing this, hearing this, 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 this man share this, led me to a fresh love for this well, well-known psalm, what, what, what was well, well known to me, and I just read it through super quickly, became fresh and alive again. I revisited Psalm 23. And in the same way, Jesus causes these members of the Sadducees to revisit this, this, this moment of the burning bush, especially looking at the verb tense. So if you've lost your love for the word of God, rekindle it by revisiting your favorite passages and stay there and linger there 
and meditate on them. Let them roll around in your mind and in your mouth throughout the whole of the day. Each word, each phrase, each sentence, even, you know, the grammar, the meaning, all of these are clues that reveal the Lord we love and serve. And so if, if your faith is dry, return to the verses that you used to love, lift them down off the shelf, maybe shake off the dust and say, have I missed something here? Is there something fresh that God can reveal to me through this verse? You know, yeah, there are times when I just uh, spend time with the phrase, Jesus is Lord, and I stop there, and I get reacquainted with it. And this three-word phrase fills my mind and heart until it nearly bursts. It leads me into prayer. Now, I don't think, okay, now I have to pray. But what happens is I'm saying, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus, I just focus on that. I focus on Lord. You know, I say it over and over again. And in the end, that turns into prayer. Oh, Lord, I thank you that Jesus is Lord. I thank you that you are Lord. I thank you that you're in charge of, of, of my life. You know, that, that prayer just happens. I start praying because of this glorious nuts and bolts truth, this really basic truth that Jesus is Lord, and it fills me. And so that's my encouragement to you, is to revisit these old verses and let the God that they speak of really capture your heart and mind in the flush of first love once again. And the second thing I would say is don't just stop with revisiting, you know, the old verses, you know, the ones that you know really well. Instead, I would encourage you, you know, to carry on and to range out into all of Scripture. There are mountains, there are valleys that you've never seen yet. They're in the Bible, which are waiting for you to explore. You know, the Bible is there for your exploring. And, and these men in Mark, Mark chapter 12, they didn't understand these scriptures that they already knew, but for sure they did not know the rest of it either. And so my encouragement for you is to get a Bible reading plan and to range through the landscape of the whole of scripture with the heart of an adventurer, with the heart of an explorer, now, Wendy and I l love exploring, and a few mo uh, months ago, Wendy and I and the girls drove over to Blueberry Mountain. It was a two-hour drive, and the, the road literally ended in a scrubby car park, and we were ages from anywhere, and so we got out, and we started walking, and it started raining. And we sort of sheltered, and we got wet, and then we carried on wet and hungry and rather tired. And what we thought was, was a nice afternoon jaunt turned into a bit of a wet and soggy hike. But then we reached the lookout point, and all of our regrets faded away because the view was amazing. It was absolutely glorious. And that's what happens when we range out into Scripture. This is what happens when we explore, you know, the caves and the hidden valleys there in the Bible. We are treated to views of God that we would never have seen otherwise. Our view of God that was maybe limited to, you know, a few maybe bumper sticker phrases is now so much larger. And as our view of God grows in size and in truth, so our faith increases 
but sometimes it takes work for us to get there. We might maybe trip over a phrase that we don't understand, or maybe we get caught in a downpour of lack of understanding, but you have to keep on going. You know, you have to keep on, because just over that rise is a view of God that you've never seen before, and it was there all of the time, but you didn't see it. So range out into all of Scripture. You know, my times of largest complaint when, when I feel really overwhelmed by life, they happen when I'm not ranging out into all of Scripture. My times of sin happen almost exclusively when I'm not ranging out into all of Scripture, when my view of the Lord is limited to the rainy view of a parking lot. You know, a couple of verses here and a couple of verses there. I'm not worshiping God anymore. All I see is this, my reality. But then Jesus calls us to get out of the car, out of the parking lot, and to strike out with faith up the trail of his revelation. He wants you to see the landscape that can be only seen by those who range out into all of Scripture. That, that, that one verse that he wants to use so that you have the sustenance for you to get through the next season of your life, well, that's hidden in a cleft on a mountain somewhere. And so you have to climb that mountain. And then you ask, well, which mountain? You don't know, so you climb them all. And you'll find that verse. And as you're walking your way to find that verse, you'll find all, of, all sorts of other verses there on the journey as well. And that verse which, you know, which the Lord has ready for you to, to feel fulfilled and, and not thirsty anymore might be hidden across an ocean there in the Bible. And so my encouragement is to jump in the boat and to explore and to keep on exploring until you find that island where that verse is, that fresh spring verse, and then you drink of it. And while you're on your way there, you'll find so many other treasures. If I base my view of God on a few verses of Scripture, that's like me basing my knowledge of Wendy on her left little pinky finger. I might know, you know, the finger very well. And I might spend hours looking at it and marveling at what a pinky that is. But what about her eyes? What about her sense of humor? What about her voice? What about the rest of her? And so range out into Scripture Read widely, read broadly, read meditatively, read deeply. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may, may, be, thorough, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So do you want to have that life where you are equipped for every good work which the Lord has for you. You are ready for it. Then read all Scripture. Romans 15 verse 4 says this, For everything that was written in the past, this is one that's worth underlining, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance 
taught in the scriptures and and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So are you lacking hope? Then read your Bible and you will find examples of endurance and examples of, of, of wonderful encouragement that cause hope to rise up in your life. So re- revisit those scriptures that you know and range out into all of the Bible. Don't settle. Learn, learn how to cultivate this nature and the blood of an explorer in you. Learn how to love the Word of God. Learn how to respect it. Learn how to want it. Like President Jefferson and the Sadducees, or they, they had a limited view of God because it was only based on the first five books of the Bible. And even what they were reading showed that they didn't really understand it. But Jesus showed them that God is the God of the resurrection. And Jesus showed them that in heaven there is no marriage because all of our soul-deep longings and needs will be met when we come face-to-face with Almighty God. And how did Jesus show them this? By showing them how to revisit scriptures that they knew and by taking them beyond what they knew into all of scripture because he knew something he knew something absolutely vital that when our bible is incomplete so is our view of him